The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, would you open to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4? We're going to be in verses 1 to 7 this morning. And we are concluding what has been a six-part sermon series entitled, Worthy of It All. We have been casting our eyes on the person of Jesus We have been considering who he claims to be and what he has demonstrated for us and what he has made clear about God and the world and us and the future. And we have been captivated by who he is. And the goal of this series has been to present kind of five portraits of a fully devoted life. Now, these are great standalone sermons for any believer or unbeliever considering Jesus, but they're unique Uh, in this season for us as a church family, because through some redirected circumstances, God has led us away temporarily from building a larger adult sanctuary on this site so as to maintain momentum and become a multiplying church and has pivoted our strategy to become one church in two cities and provided for us the purchase of a 24,000 square foot church building at 620 South Grandview Avenue, Daytona Beachside, so we're venturing into the world of multi-site. And so that's going to be different for us. And, but we're willing to make the sacrifices necessary to continue the momentum of what God is doing uh, in Christ Church and through Christ Church into our community. And we're all about making much of him to as many people as we can. Can I get amen? And so we are, we are making that pivot. Um, that campus is uh, now under renovation. It was built in 1951 with several additions, and it looked like your grandma's church when we bought it. And so we are going in there to freshen up everything and to make some adjustments for our use of the space. So it's currently under renovation. I was there yesterday, day before yesterday, and the kids' wing is all being renovated, and I am getting so excited. And I know that you will too. Um, The project is big, and while it is a huge cost savings for us to purchase that versus building here, Um, We have a comfortable amount of financing and a big chunk to do renovations, but we have phased the project. Phase one allows us to renovate the sanctuary, chapel, and kids' space so that we can begin meeting there. Phase two gives us access to three more large meeting rooms and a whole suite of offices, as well as the fellowship hall. And then phase three, there's an upstairs, what was previously a counseling center, another 3,000 square feet of usable space Um, And we could right now renovate all that and start to use it immediately, um, but we're short about $150,000, which I have no question we could easily put together. And so this, this sermon series has been preparing our hearts to say yes to the one who is worthy of it all. And so next Sunday will be Say Yes Sunday. We will be saying yes to three things, to sowing, serving, and sharing. We are going to have a historic offering, a one-time offering, not a pledge like we've done in the past, but just a one-time offering for all of us to asking God, what do you want me to do to contribute? We're going to do that next week. We're going to sow into this ministry. We're going to serve. We're going to sign up to volunteer. We're asking everyone, whether you volunteer or not, everyone who's volunteering, to let us know where you plan to volunteer, whether it's in Port Orange or Daytona, what team, and so we can build teams so that when it's time for us to move into both locations, we have uh, fully prepared teams and we're ready to host services. And so you'll have a chance to sow and to serve. And then to share. We want to be provoked repeatedly into sharing our Jesus story. If you know Jesus, then you know he is the main character of all of history and is therefore the main character in each of our stories 
And we wanna get good at sharing our rescue story of how we met Jesus and how he has shaped our lives as they are today. And so we wanna be doing that and inviting the people in our communities to come participate with us in what God is doing here at Christ Church. And so we are gonna do that. And in order to prepare our hearts for that, I want us to consider this final sermon in the series, which I'm calling Walk Worthy. Can somebody say Walk Worthy? Walk Worthy. To do that, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. The reason I want to have a whole kind of Sunday to prepare is that um, the Bible has a lot to say about giving, and the Bible... Uh, Jesus has a lot to say about money and possessions, eternity and giving and generosity. A lot of what Jesus talked about uh, was in that vein. And so we don't do like an offering on Sunday morning. If you're a guest, if you're a part of Christ Church, you know that. We, don't, we, we give as an act of worship. We do that privately and intentionally through the boxes and online in different ways. Um, but we are preparing our hearts to give in a unique way next Sunday. And so I wanted to just take a little bit of time today to kind of get us ready to say yes, to say yes to making a big offering, to say yes to signing up to serving for some people who aren't serving yet, other people serving more frequently or in new places. And so I want us to really get ourselves ready. And it brings me to this perspective of walking, our walk with God. And so I want to look at just these seven verses of Ephesians chapter four, and then we'll jump in. Here's what it says. This is the Apostle Paul writing from prison. So this is not a metaphor. He's saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God, we thank you for your word that's been read in our hearing. I pray that you would apply its eternal truth to our hearts, that you would shape and mold our hearts into your own, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ more and more and more. God, I pray for every single one of us who is a part of the Christchurch family, God, that we would be coming to you and asking as we walk with you, what do you want from me? And then with joy in our hearts, stirred and cheerful, that we would contribute and commit and serve and, Lord, do what we can to spread the good news about Jesus in Volusia County in this generation. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Your servants are listening. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. I heard a story recently about an older gentleman who retired, and after he quit working, he began to pack on the pounds. So he gained a bunch of weight, and so he went to his doctor to see if there was something wrong, and the doctor did some tests, and then he said, I suggest that you begin walking five miles a day. So okay. So he did that, and two weeks later, the doctor called, said, how do you feel? And he said, 
far from home. That's how I feel. <laughs> so he needed a little bit more instruction there about what exactly. I heard a joke like that too when I was a kid. It, someone said that uh, their grandmother lived to be 96, that she started walking eight miles a day when she was 60, and they hadn't seen her since. So. <laughs> Funny walking jokes. I'm, I'm making light of walking because we don't think about walking the same way a first century Israelite would have thought about walking. Um, I'm guessing all of you drove here today. Anybody walk to church today? Anybody? No, I didn't think so. Um, we don't typically walk places. I mean, some little, you know, we have walkable cities and walkable centers and we do some walking, the Tanger outlets and whatever. We walk from store to store. But we typically, when it comes to transportation, we drive. And we lost something of the intimacy and the activity that, that there is in, in walking. In the first century, you would be going from town to town, place to place, and you would walk. You'd do a lot of walking, miles and miles and miles of walking every day. And in your walking, you would be walking either with someone that went along with you or on a road that involved other people walking. And it was an opportunity for engagement, for conversation, and for intimacy. And so when the Apostle Paul pens the letter to the Ephesians after three chapters of extolling the work of God and its implication in the church of Jesus, this new incredible thing that God was doing, the kingdom of heaven, and then he's applying its reality to the individual Christian saying, this is how you should live your life. He grabs a hold of the term walking to be euphemistic for your relationship with God outworked in real time, and he urges the Christians in Ephesus and throughout the region to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He then adds these words that are words that have to do with interpersonal interactions and love, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, unity. And he says, we're all part of this one thing, and he purposefully tells us this one thing in seven different ways which is the totality of the mission of God in its singular oneness. And then conversely in verse seven says, but while there is this one thing God is doing, there's a part to play for every single individual. And every single person has received a gift. It's been measured out by Christ himself. And you have a part to play in this one thing that God is doing. God is doing one thing in the earth and you, you, not others, not us, not them, you have been called into it. In fact, grace has been given. A gift has been given to you in order that you may participate, you may engage, that you may be active in a relationship with God that leads to him fulfilling his eternal work of redemption. This past Wednesday, uh, we had our youth group and we've been taking turns teaching. I used to do all the teaching and now we have a group of mentors who teach and one of our youth group leaders, Justin, um, brought the word. And so I got to sit in the back row with my wife. It's really fun for me to sit while someone else preaches. And so I have my arm around her and we're listening and Justin's doing part two in this series for our, our middle and high school students on the word of God. And so the first week, the kids learned that scriptures are inspired by God. They're authoritative. They're alive and active. And then this past Wednesday, Justin taught the kids that God's got a big story and there's a bunch of little stories inside of here that you can't make sense of these little stories until you get the big story. And he gave all the kids a puzzle piece. Every kid had a puzzle piece. And he said, you know, you have... You have one little puzzle piece. You can't know what the whole is just from that one, but when you put them all together, you see it. 
And then having seen the big picture, you can put the puzzle piece together. It's a cool illustration. And so I'm sitting in the back of the room. And so Justin says, he puts, puts me on the spot and he goes, Pastor Jesse, if you could sum up the whole Bible in one sentence, what would it be? Now, if that makes you nervous, you're not like me. I've been waiting my whole life for someone to ask me that question. All right. I was locked and loaded. I was ready to go. It rolled off my tongue. I was like, it finally it happened, Lord. And here's my answer from the scriptures. God's eternal purpose is to dwell with a people he has made his own. That's the Bible in one sentence. God's eternal purpose is to dwell with a people he has made his own. And this is often characterized in the different books of the Bible as a walk or as an actual physical engagement of God walking with his people. This may sound familiar to you from the Genesis narrative. You know, the Genesis account is about God who made the world and everything in it, but it's all created so that he can have a place and, a t- and, a, and time, space time, to where he can interact with humanity, and that's personified in Adam and Eve. And do you remember, after Adam and Eve had distrusted and disbelieved God and they disobeyed him, what happened? God came to them, And they hid from him, but what was he doing? He was walking in the cool of the day, the Bible says. Here was this normal interaction between the creator of heaven and earth and those beings created in his image, and he's coming to them to dwell with them, to walk with them. Of course, because of their shame, because of their disobedience, they were hiding themselves from God. And what does he say? Where are you? Where did you go? You know, we... You oftentimes hear those little quips, like, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? You know, like, we needed to be told that. But what you see in the scripture is that when we move away from God, he always continues to move toward us. Now, it is true that God moved Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, but it wasn't because he needed to be away from them. It was because that is where the tree of life was. That's where eternity was. It was pictured and symbolized in this tree where they would have eternal life. And because of sin, they now will not, they're cut off from that eternal source of life. But the picture from the whole scripture is not that God was shocked when this happened to Adam and Eve. Do you realize this? Ephesians chapter one tells us that before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ. You see, the eternal purpose of God is that he would dwell with the people, not who are perfect, not who are better, not who are, who are made his own. And how are they made his own? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God isn't looking for a perfect people. He's after a perfected people. He's after a people who have received his mercy and his compassion and his forgiveness. And that is to be found in none other than Jesus, Messiah. And so the whole Old Testament is telling story after story after story leading up to the person of Jesus. And the whole New Testament applies the reality for the believer of what it means to be one with God through faith in Jesus and to live your life in what Paul here calls a walk with God. I'm in reading the chronological Bible now. In one year, I've slowed it down from our six months we did earlier this year. But I'm just struck in the Pentateuch all the places where we get a visual of God dwelling with his people. Exodus 25, 8, when God brings his people out into the wilderness to dwell among them. He said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Leviticus 26, 11, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright or 
erect. God's saying, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people and I'm gonna walk with you. This is the, the law is given and reiterated in Numbers. You shall not defile the land in which you live. Why? In the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. You can read from the Pentateuch all the way through wisdom literature, the poems, the Psalms and Proverbs, the history books of Israel and all the prophetic books. And again and again and again, you're going to see the movement of God toward his people and the call of God to return to him. He, he creates all sorts of different covenants by which people can be made right in his sight, be made clean, be made whole, be purified and forgiven. Ultimately, all of those lead up to and point to the person of Jesus. I don't know, I had a hard time in Exodus this time. Have you guys read those chapters of Exodus that are describing the temple and all of its component parts? Or all the tabernacle and all of its components? The, alt, the bronze altars and the tables and the lampstands and the fabric and the ephod. And you're like, oh my goodness, I don't even like watching HGTV. And I don't know, I'm reading this on the page and it doesn't make any sense. And, but as you understand what each of those elements are, they're all foreshadows of what God would do through Christ and how he would bring us near to him and how he would dwell among us. In fact, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the people except the high priest on one day a year when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom and, and the presence of God was made open to all people who would come to him by faith because the eternal purpose of God is to dwell with the people he has made his own and the call of God in every generation has been return to me, you are mine, come home to me. And in fact, this is nowhere pictured more clearly than in the person of Jesus. In fact, Malachi ends with God saying, all right, you're not gonna change because your, heart, your hearts are hard, you keep going astray, so guess what? I'm coming. And that's how Malachi ends and the Old Testament ends. You get 400 years of the intertestamental period and then Matthew breaks on the scene with the story of the virgin birth in Matthew chapter 21. Mary has to tell Joseph the, the hard news that she's pregnant while they're engaged and he has to, like every man, weigh his options and try to fix it. And it says in Matthew 1.20, but as he's considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's not that she was unfaithful, it's that she was found faithful. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, HaYashua, God saves. That's his name, verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John put it this way in his gospel, speaking of Jesus. He said, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who, all, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And you can, you can skip all the other books. You'll find it in every one. Get all the way to Revelation when there's a vision of the end and all things, the consummation has come and final judgment and God has wiped away every tear from our eye. And in Revelation 21 verse three, we read, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, look here, English Southern version. <laughs> behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He 
will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And if that's the eternal purpose of God is to dwell with the people he has made his own, then the only missing component for the whole universe to be as it should is you giving yourself entirely to Jesus. Do you realize that? If every human being on the planet right now yielded their life, confessed their sin, and invited the salvation of God and received his gift of salvation, then God would be dwelling with his people in a completely unfettered way. Do you realize this? And this is what the church exists to proclaim. That God has a plan and a purpose to redeem humanity and that through the blood of Jesus, every single human being from every nation, every language, every tribe, young and old, male and female, everyone is invited to come by faith in Jesus and have God dwell in their very being and to be his person. Isn't that good news? And that's what we're called to proclaim and that's what we are called to bring about in the earth. Now, I don't know if this ever crossed your mind, but when God moves in the earth in various ways all through the Bible to dwell among his people, he has done so repeatedly by calling upon their faith, obedience, and generosity. God saw how evil the world had gotten. He had favor upon Noah. He decided he would be faithful to his word. And so Noah and his family would be saved. And so what did God do? God took the initiative and told Noah, build an ark. Yes? Noah did not have that idea. He wasn't in the desert going, you know what would be cool? A giant boat. No, it didn't come from him. It came from God. But it was through his belief in what God had said and his obedience, and his investment of time, and treasure, and talent, that the ark was built. You see that? And there was the ark when the floods came, and the rains fell, and the earth gave up its water, and judgment was was mediated. Salvation came as a gift from God, by his grace, but in in keeping with the faith, obedience, and generosity of Noah. And you can follow that all the way through. God said to Abraham, get up and leave the land of your father and go to the place I will show you. What did he do? He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. He went somewhere and eventually becomes the father of many nations, right? Because of God's move to dwell among his people, oftentimes, really repeatedly, it comes down to obedience. And who was the one human who fully yielded himself to God's purpose unto the point of death, yea, even death on a cross, Jesus, Messiah. And so he becomes the source of our righteousness. And so our faith is in him and our obedience is toward him, but our righteousness is found in him and not on ourselves. Do you see it? So this is the way that God moves. Now, two levels are going on here. One, there's a universal application of this reality that God has called each of you, Ephesians 4, 7, to each one of you has been given a gift according to the measure of Christ. And so God has made you and he's given you gifts, natural and then supernatural. And then he is expecting to walk with you and to work with you to bring about his will to dwell among a people he's made his own. Every single person, 
So that's universal and completely applicable to your life and throughout the seasons of your life. God will use that in a variety of ways to bring about his will for you and around you and, and in the earth. Isn't that awesome? That's, that's the universal level. Now, if you're a part of the Christ Church family, we are in a moment when God is doing a very specific thing in us and through us for Volusia County. We are doing a thing that is to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to make room for everybody, and to keep creating space where God can show up and in the presence of God, people's lives can be changed forever. That's what we're trying to get done, right? And so God's calling us as a church to do that. And if you are a part of our Christ Church family and you are feeling called to be a part of this, then there's going to be a faith-filled response to this that is expressed through giving and serving and inviting and sharing your story with other people. So that's a specific application. And I'm leaving this to you to consider what your role would be. Now, I'm gonna apply this with the three T's. You guys know them. Time, talent, and treasure. Jesus, as I mentioned before, told a lot of stories, uh, parables, and teachings about money, wealth, trust, faithfulness, generosity, giving. There's so much of what Jesus talked about that has to do with money. Now, I'm going to tell you three short parables that Jesus told that illustrate the invitation to walk with God in accordance with the use of time, talent or gifts, and treasure, actual income. And so I want to talk to you about those. And they may be a little challenging for you. These three stories they're told kind of like in an inverse way, like the good guy is the bad guy. You guys like those movies? You guys like those movies where the bad guy is the good guy? No? No, of course not. You're in church. Why would you like those movies? I'm the weirdo, apparently. Let's look at the first one and talk about time. Somebody say time, time, time. If Jesus is worthy, he's worthy of all of your time. Luke 12, 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Pause. Now, Old Testament law says the firstborn son gets two-thirds of the inheritance and the other sons get a fraction of the remaining third. This is what keeps generational wealth building and allows there to be a continuing patriarchy throughout society. So that was the way the law was structured. And so there's a couple options here, but this brother, this, this, this guy's coming and saying, tell my brother to, which means he's likely a younger brother. And he's either saying, tell him to give me what's my fair share, or he's saying, give me what's mine and cash it out, essentially. So the, once the father was dead, the older brother would be the man of the household and therefore could decide what all happened. And there would be a place for this brother and his inheritance would be intact, but he wouldn't have access to it. And so it's hard to say what the exact situation is, but he's coming to Jesus to get something. I don't know if you guys have ever rolled up into church with a big old prayer request. All right, Lord, this is your chance. Do me a solid right? Well, this is what this guy does to Jesus in the crowd. Look what Jesus says to him in verse 14. He said to him, man, I think his tone sounded just like that. Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? So that's not why I'm not here to decide your custody battle, your, your inheritance. He said to them, now he's speaking to everyone, take care. This is a warning. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. This is wanting what's not yours. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so here Jesus is saying, look, if you're wanting something you don't have, it may reveal the fact that you think joy and happiness, peace, meaning, fulfillment, significance is going to be found in having the things that you think you want. And he says, that's not where it is. Watch out. And then he tells a story. Look at this, verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, 
the land of a rich man produced plentifully. So you got a rich dude with land, and now he's having a really good year, a bumper crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I've got more than I can handle. And he said, he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So that's his practical move. But look, look, look what's going on in his heart. Verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul. I love how he talks to himself here. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Stop right there. Now listen, this is challenging because what I just read to you, which Jesus is going to subvert, is literally the American dream. Literally. Like all of us in this room grew up with this being the literal stated goal of success. Do you realize this? It's not a matter of some of us. It's not a thing people are susceptible to. We're all planning to do what this guy's doing right now. And some of us are looking at statements regularly to find out if today's the day. Okay? Now look at what Jesus says to him. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, this is obviously about wealth. It's not about money because this is grain, okay? But grain can be exchanged for goods. And so you tear down your barns, you build bigger barns, you fill them full of grain, and you have enough that you can continue to dole out that grain and not have to work. And that sounds like the good life. Woohoo! Jesus says, no, no, that's not the way you're supposed to think about this. Life isn't in how much stuff you have so that you can feel free and relaxed and safe and provided for because of the things in your possession. Life is actually about a relationship that you have with God, your provider and the giver of all good things. Do you understand this? And so Jesus says, watch out and be on guard for this. This is not a good thing. In fact, the the summary point is that It's foolish to lay up treasures for yourself and not to be rich towards God. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not good to lay up treasures. Jesus says, absolutely. If you have a good year, great. Take it all. Keep what you can, what you have room for, what you need. But when God is good to you, you ought to be thinking, how can I be rich toward him? Not how can I be God for me, but how can I honor God who has blessed me thus? You notice that this is a rich man with land, but it's a productive year which he has no control over. Do you see this? Now, some of you are like, yes, that's right. But I lost you when I said rich man because you were like, not me. Of course, of course, if I, if I won the lottery, I would pay for the whole church project. How many of you guys have had that thought already? You're like, come on, church project. And then if you won, you'd be like, well, half the church project. Right? This is how the human heart works. This is what goes on. And so the reason for this is that we can't see rich in the mirror. Do you realize this? Now, most people, they start off poor. They can be rich kids, but then reality check. And then you, you work hard and you gain wealth and you move from being poor to rich over the course of your life. And you can have some, some plummets where things can go bad and you have to start over again. But typically we all, we've all been, we've had less and we've had more. So it's not like there's rich people and poor people. That doesn't exist, Right. But we all think of ourselves wherever we are at in that as being 
better than maybe we've had before, but the rich people are always those people. Isn't it? Isn't that true? So you guys remember Jeff Foxworthy? You might be a redneck if. Do you remember those jokes? So I started thinking about this and I thought, we should just do a whole series of like, you might be rich jokes, okay? Like if I said to you, if you've never paid for gas with change, you might be rich. Somebody paid for gas with change recently? Say amen. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. How about, how about, if you've never prayed for money that didn't involve exact pennies, you might be rich. If you've never prayed, Lord, I need $78.64 by Thursday, you might be rich. If you've never stood in a fast food restaurant and calculated what costs more, the combo or each piece individually, <laughs> you might be rich. If you've ever received a check in the mail and didn't deposit it that same day, you rich. You stuck that thing on the fridge with a magnet, you're rich. Let me tell you that right now. How about this? If you ever had to buy clothes for a one-time event and you didn't take the tags off, you know what I'm talking about? Guess who's going to Dillard's tomorrow? Return. The problem is we can't see rich in the mirror. We always look back with the same eyes we look down. And Jesus is saying, it's not about how much money you have. It's about how rich are you toward God. You see this? Because if you expect him to continue to provide plentifully for you, then you've entered into this faith walk with God that's not the scarcity mentality that the world pushes on you. The scarcity mentality says there's only so much stuff and you have to carve out to get yours and hold on to it or someone else will get it or it will disappear. The abundance mentality says, no, there's a God in heaven who made the world and everything in it. And when I live under his rule and reign, he provides for me. And when I do what he wants me to do and I'm rich towards him, there's always more that comes. And the more I give, the more comes to me and the more other people are blessed and there's more for everybody. That's an abundance mentality. That is not the world in which we live. And so you've got to be on guard against covetousness so that you can recognize the use of time. And that's why I wanted to point this out. This appears to be about money, but it's not. It's about time. What does God say to the man? He says, fool, this night, your time is up. The question is, what could you have done with those same funds yesterday when you're going to stand before your maker tomorrow? You're presuming that you have forever. And nobody's promised that. Do you see? Jesus wants you to redeem the time by being rich toward God in every situation. I'm gonna trust him. Time is limited. And do you use the time you have? Do you invest that time to fulfill the purposes of God in your life? Secondly, talent. Somebody say talent. Talent. Do you guys know how influential the Bible is? That the English word talent, which means gift or skill, actually is the denomination of money that was used in Matthew chapter 25 and its proverbial use became its actual use as it was rendered into English. Isn't that something else? We say talent like a talent show, but talent was like a denomination of money. And in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story. There's a lot of repetition and redundancy in this story, and so I'll sum it up. Jesus says there's a rich master who has three servants, and to one servant he gives five talents, to one servant he gives two talents, and to the other servant he gives one talent. He goes away, and after some period of time he comes back and looks for an accounting of what each of those servants did with their talents. And the first servant said, I took your talents and I made trades and I doubled your money. Here are the 10 talents that 
you are now belong to you. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a much, come into the joy of your master. He has the same interaction with the servant that received the two talents. He said, I doubled it from two to four. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, come into the joy of your master. And then the servant who just had one little talent, he said, I was afraid of you because you always want to profit and I didn't want to risk failure. And so I buried that thing in the backyard. Here's your talent. And the response from the master in Jesus' story is not a positive response. He says in verse 26, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. You knew this about me? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers at least. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Now, before you move to the next verse, notice that what Jesus is pointing out from this story is not that God is angry or is a profiteering capitalist. What he's pointing out is if you don't invest the skills and abilities and opportunities that God has given to you, then when you stand before God, you're presenting a loss for him. That you have an incredible potential when you use your gifts for his purposes. And if you don't take the risk of failure, and if you don't step out of your comfort zone, then you're actually creating a loss for God. Now, that doesn't affect your eternal salvation in any means at all. This is about a relationship with God by grace and through faith. We're talking about what God wants to do with you. He's already done the best thing for you, amen? But he wants to work through you, and he wants to work with you. In verse 28, the story ends, so take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents for to everyone who has more will be given and, to, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, also notice that not everybody in this story has been given equal amounts of talents. Right now, we live in a world that is fixated on equity. Everything's gotta be equal for everyone always in every situation or else. And that is the dumbest thing ever. The world does not work like that. The Bible isn't written like that. God, you got five talent people and two talent people and one trick ponies. <laughs> but you'll only be held responsible for what you did with what God gave you. Isn't that good news? Listen, you don't have to be better or have more than somebody else. God isn't looking for more than others. He's looking for faithful from yes. you. Time, talent, treasure. Somebody say treasure. This is this really fun story, and I'll close in Luke chapter 16, verses one to nine. And this one is both about money and also actually about money. Here's what it says, Luke 16, one to nine. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man, I know where this is going. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and said, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Now, can we just stop there and just notice the reality of what we're seeing in our own world today, that now an accusation is equal to guilt and judgment. This is cancel culture long before Twitter. <laughs> Jesus is saying this. And we don't even know from the story if this guy was guilty of the thing that he was being charged with. We just know he was charged and therefore no longer, no longer uh, trustworthy. And so he's getting axed. So he, he hasn't even had a chance to prove anything. And so he's in this position. And once you've been let go as a manager of a rich person's assets, you do not have access to do that role any longer. Do you realize this? And so this guy's in a pickle, whether he's guilty or not. And so verse three says, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do? 
since my master is taking the management away from me. And I love his realism here. Look what he says. I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Here's the strategy. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Discount. Then he said to the other, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Do you realize what he did here? I don't know if he was guilty or not, but if he's going down for doing something wrong, guess what? He doing something wrong. But look what he did. Look what he did. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, not if, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I know you've heard before that you can't take anything with you. Naked you come into the world and naked you go out of this world. Everything you have in life, you leave behind. My dad, he's a, he's a character. He, he told me he wants me, when he dies, to put a, a U-Haul, on the, U-Haul trailer on the back of the hearse. That's what he said. He said, everyone says you never see a hearse with a U-Haul trailer. So that's what I want you to do. I'm like, that's the way you want to spend your money? You want to rent an empty U-Haul trailer? Yep, that's my dad. But you can't take it with you, right? Listen to what Jesus' story is all about. He says, listen, you have this temporary moment and these assets that are in your hand. And one day you'll be gone and they will go to somebody else. But what you do with them and the impact that has on other people lasts forever. And one day, when the consummation of all things has occurred and you are standing before God, justified and accepted on the righteousness of Christ and through faith in his name, you will stand before God to give an account of what you did and none of your accounts and none of your money, none of your assets will be with you. But the people who you are surrounded by and the impact you made on their lives will stand as a proclamation of your generosity and you being rich towards God. Now, in closing, I want to draw your attention to the reason why these parables can be difficult. Because in the motives of the people in these stories, the rich fool was motivated by greed and self-reliance. The one talent holder was motivated by a fear of failure. And the shrewd manager was motivated by desperation and judgment. But Jesus subverts these realities to make a point, And then he replaces those motives. He says... Not be greedy and self-reliant, but be rich toward God. Do you see that this is a command towards love and trust and describes a walk with God, a relationship of activity? We're told to make friends with unrighteous wealth. There's a picture of generosity and a focus on people and not on possessions. And then we're called to invest with risk. Yes, there, there's potential for risk, but God's not looking for the outcomes out of your control. He's looking for the faithfulness of you doing what he has entrusted into your care. And so there is a reward and increased responsibility. I love that in Exodus, we read Exodus 25 too, that talked about a free will offering of, of all God's people bringing an offering so that 
they could build the sanctuary, build the tabernacle in the desert. And I don't know if you read all the way through to verse 36, through all the de descriptions of the ephods and the altars and the, the basins and the, the tapestries and all the things. But when the artisans began to take all the possessions that people had given out of this free will offering and to build the things that God had called them to build, it said, and they received from Moses all the contribution, Exodus 36, three, that the people of Israel had brought for the doing of the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for the doing of the work of the Lord that has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained. Isn't that beautiful? How would you like that? How would you like for me to get up in two weeks and go, okay, that's enough, that's enough. Stop, 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 stop. Everything's bought and paid for, we're done. This, was, this is the expression of people whose hearts are captivated by the God who is worthy of it all, who has an eternal purpose to dwell among his people, who's invited us to walk with him every single day, to give to him our moments, our time, to use for his purposes every gift and ability, every talent that he's given to us, and to invest the riches that he's entrusted to our care for the good of other people and for his purposes. And so the question that remains, and I'll leave you with this, as you have a week to prayerfully consider what God wants you to commit to, what God wants you to do, is if this is the response all of us are supposed to have toward God, the question then becomes personal, and that is, what does God want from me? And only he can answer that for you. Nobody else can. But if you will wake up each morning this week and you will come to the Lord and say, God, you are worthy of it all. Everything I have is yours. I myself, my own soul belongs to you. And so what would you have me to do with my time, with my talent, with my treasure? And here's the reality. God wants to share with everyone. Brothers and sisters, do you believe because of what Jesus has done that God wants you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants others to share in that same hope you have? Do you, do you believe God intends to make room for other people to encounter him and experience the good news of great joy for all people through our generosity and our service and our proclamation of that good news? Yes? Can and will God supply us when we are faithful with what he's entrusted to our care and give us more than we had to start with? Then why wouldn't we live worthy of it all? Why not? walk worthy of it all. Let me pray for us. God, I just, I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for what you're doing in and through Christ Church. I thank you for what you're doing in each of our hearts. God, I pray that as we walk with you and wake up to you, consider the calling to which we have been called. God, I pray that you would stir in us a deeper and deeper desire to know you and love you with everything that we have. God, I pray that you would increase a spiritual fervor that would be released in acts of generosity and service that reshape Port Orange and Daytona Beach and Volusia County and through all of our lives, no matter where we are. God, I pray that we would all begin to order our lives before you, that we would make you number one. And God, I pray that you would just increase our desire to live for your glory, God. That our lives would be 
so deeply and profoundly meaningful. God, I pray that as you lead us, that we would walk in love, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, maintaining unity. God, I pray that we would walk in the life that Christ gives. Lord, that we would wake up every day to newness of life and new mercy. God, I pray that we would live in the light, that we would walk in the truth. God, that we would walk by faith in the Son of God. Lord, I pray that we would walk in a manner that is worthy of the good news of Jesus. And that as we respond in faith-filled obedience and generosity, that you would accomplish your purpose to dwell among a people that you have made your own. God, we love you. We honor you. And now we invite you to speak. Direct us each, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said... Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for being with us this morning. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday for Say Yes Sunday. We'll see you then.